The Guardian. The acknowledgement of this industry is not yet uh, complete. It is not seen as a total industry and it is not seen for what it can do on the ground. What we need to do now is make sure that we knit it together and that we present the case of travel and tourism and make sure that this is an industry that is on all national, global and regional agendas. Every year, millions of tourists make their way to developing countries around the world, drawn by beautiful beaches, sunshine and exotic wildlife. And governments across the developing world are working to expand their tourism industries, looking to reap the economic benefits of foreign visitors with strong currencies. The UN World Tourism Organization argues that responsible and sustainable tourism can play a significant role in eradicating poverty and meeting the Millennium Development Goals. But are they right? I'm Madeleine Bunting and in this week's Focus podcast, we'll be looking at how tourism affects the poor and what, if anything, can be done to make tourism work for development. We'll look at the rise of the ethical tourist, as well as slumdog tours, which take travellers around some of the world's poorest communities. But we'll start off with a report from Colombia-based journalist and filmmaker Toby Muse, who reports from the town of Nazareth in the Colombian Amazon, where they have banned tourists. In the blazing midday sun, barefoot indigenous children play football in this tiny Amazon town. Around the small football pitch, the jungle pushes in, and just a short walk away is the mighty Amazon River itself. The town of Nazareth is a traveler's dream. Wildlife prowls the surrounding rainforests, and the Tacuna Indians practice ceremonies that long predate the arrival of the Spanish conquistadores. But no tourists will see any of this, because the town has banned them. Nazareth took the decision to shun travellers because it claims that locals are receiving only a tiny fraction of the income of tourism. So says Luzdari Mojica Pereira, a local resident. We haven't received any benefit from the tourists. Other communities sell them only a few handmade goods. The tourists come with the travel agencies and these towns just become one more stop for these visitors. Maybe they buy a single wristband or other handmade goods they like, but the indigenous people don't sell much. Another concern among indigenous leaders is that local children are adopting the outsiders' ways. With many children more comfortable in western dress and listening to the imported music of reggaeton and Colombia's Bajanato. Juvencio Pereira is an indigenous guard from Nazareth. The Council of Elders has taken a decision about the influence of other cultures on our children. The children are leaning towards Western culture. This is a role of the guards, defend our race, our customs, and our continuing existence in our territory. The town of 800 people, a 20-minute boat ride from the tourist hub of Leticia, takes its band seriously. Armed with their traditional wooden batons, guards stand at the village entrance, ready to deter any unwelcome visitors. 
With the rise of ecotourism, this part of the Amazon has seen a flood of travelers arriving to experience the world's most biologically diverse region. Tourists swim with the Amazon's pink dolphins, fish for piranhas, hike through the rainforests, and take in a tropical thunderstorm that lights up the heavens. According to the tourism office for the Colombian province of Amazonas, the 35,000 people who trekked to the region in 2010 represent a five-fold surge in numbers over the past eight years. A couple of hours downriver from Nazareth lies Puerto Nariño. This town receives a steady stream of tourists. Puerto Nariño's mayor, Nelson Ruiz, understands Nazareth's worries, but says that if tourism is well regulated, it can help lift communities out of the poverty that afflicts much of this zone. All we expect is that tourists will respect our culture. For this reason, we talk about sustainability, not destruction of the environment, no corruption, no prostitution. We hope that the tourist who arrives here will share our ideas. We tell the agencies when they come here, we're sorry, but there's a limit. We'll take the tourists from here to help our local economy. We have to do a lot more things to get ready, to build hostels in the communities for the tourists. We are working on this, so the money stays with us and other local indigenous communities. I hope that people understand that there is a future in tourism, that it doesn't have to be just agriculture, fishing and wood, but also tourism. It seems unlikely tourism in the region will decrease any time soon. The question is, how long can Nazareth hold out? Toby Muse on how tourism is causing great concerns in Nazareth, Colombia. Over the past 10 years, a number of ethical tourism companies have been set up and they claim they can avoid the situation Nazareth finds itself in. Amanda Marks is the MD and founder of UK-based Tribes Travel, who offer tours and holidays to Africa, Asia and South America. She explains why her company is different. And we are a small company. We're an owner-run, independent small company. But we make a massive difference. We know we make a huge difference. We don't have to be um, Thomas Cook to, uh, and have the huge numbers they have to make a difference within tourism, to make a difference to a few people on the ground. In terms of people, you have to ensure that there's, there's non-exploitation, of course. So that can be some things like porters. You have to ensure that they are not overloaded when they're carrying. So Inca Trail, going up Kilimanjaro, etc. There's also non-exploitation in terms of wages. We are probably one of the very few companies who, for a large proportion of what, of what we sell, we actually go to the lodges and we check on what people are being paid, whether they get fair holidays, that kind of thing. Also, do local people have the opportunities to be trained in their area in their area of expertise or where they want to be become expert? Do they have the opportunity to um, progress in a job if they're good at it? Can they go up the hierarchy? If you are, for example, on somebody else's land, if, if, a, if a lodge is on somebody's land and y you have to give benefit back to the people, uh, the landowners. So, for example, if you are on Maasai land, any lodge that is there, it is obviously right and proper that the, the landowners, the Maasai community that it belongs to, gets bed night fees or some kind of fee structure. And also we do things like you, know, you can't suddenly put a lodge in somewhere 
take all the water from the area and assume that everybody else will just have to deal with what they can get. You know, you have to be fair, you have to be ethical in how you think about your own premises or the, the services that you're offering as a tourism provider. I basically think that people come on ethical holidays, or at least they choose a holiday uh, they hope to be ethical, because they don't want to... Uh, make a, a negative impact. They have no wish to do that. None of us uh, want to go somewhere and destroy it. I think travellers generally have a very um, positive way of wanting to see the world. All of us would travel sustainably and ethically if we possibly can. It's not always something that is offered to people, though. Um, so quite a lot of people that come to tribes, they are coming because it is something that we actively promote to people and say, look, if you stay at this lodge, you are going to be helping this community, you are going to be putting something into this conservation project. It is something we do for ourselves. We all know that we go on holiday for ourselves. But a lot of people that travel know that if they can direct their, their money to something which also helps other people, why wouldn't you? Amanda Marks, founder of Tribes Travel, on why tourism can make a difference if it's done in the right way. A type of tour which has been heavily criticised is slumdog tourism, which offers travellers the chance to observe extreme poverty firsthand. Kibera in Nairobi is possibly the world's largest slum and companies offer the chance to take pictures of people with desperately poor living conditions. Kennedy Odede is originally from Kibera and is now Executive Director of Shining Hope for Communities, a US-based charity. He is heavily critical of this type of tour. I don't say it's bad to explore other places, to know other places, but we have to be conscious, you know, when we go to areas of poverty. And I, I was really critical with the people who come. They just want to come for is one streetway, you know, it's about, about themselves. To come and take horrible pictures of people suffering, you know. For example, somebody took a picture of a, a, poor, a poor woman giving birth, you know, and that's, I think, that's horrific, you know. When you go to a place where people are really struggling in life and you make their struggle, you, you, you romanticize their struggle. I think that's what's really good, you know. And that's what has been happening most of the time. People travel to go to places like Kibera. Then they see kids walking naked. They laugh. They take pictures, you know. I used to see these people who come and hold their nose high on the hill. They're trying to be like, oh, my God, this place is smelling. Well, it's smelling and you're walking in our home. You're saying smelling and you're at the same place in my home, you know. I'm talking about what is called human dignity and respect. Some of my buddies, friends, who I used, they... <laughs> Yeah, they also they argue that they make they make living by bringing people to Kibera. 80% of population are jobless. People are trying to find ways, any way that they can make money. So there are, so some some people are being used by the tourist companies that will be like, hey, because you're from Kibera, I'll give you five dollars, whatever, and you have you have to make sure you take care of my tourists and make sure and make sure they took they take the pictures that they that they want. Of course, my brother, when you're poor, when you're poor, you can do, you can, you, when you're poor and you need food, you, you know, you can do anything, get? So I know people who are doing it. But I don't say tourism is bad. I want people to be, I want to be clear here. What I want is, let's think, think about social aspect of it. There's no way I will help Kibera if I just go and take the pictures, horrible pictures, and leave. But I, when I meet the people, when I make mutual relationship with people, that's the time that I will go back to UK and I will know that, oh my God, I have three books. People in Kibera need to read books. I want to send this book back to Kibera. You see why? Because you hear their story. You give them a chance. 
You talk to them. There was a relationship. They understood you. You see, they know that you're not just a bad tourist who just want to take pictures and go. You see? They, they know that you care. Kennedy Odede from Shining Hope for Communities. And joining me now in the studio to discuss some of these issues is Director of Tourism Concern UK, Tricia Barnett, Research Fellow at the Overseas Development Institute and co-author of Tourism and Poverty Reduction, Jonathan Mitchell, and President of the World Travel and Tourism Council, David Scousel. Hello to you all. Jonathan, we've just heard about some problems with tourism, but there's another side of the story, isn't there? It can play a major role in economic development. The thing about tourism is that it's a, a massive industry within within the uh, global economy. Uh, last year, about 950 million people travelled internationally. And what I find striking is that 40% of those journeys ended up in a developing country. And so uh, that's a, a trillion dollar industry uh, where a lot of the, the flows are from north to south. And it's that potential... Uh, for benefiting South, the South and reducing poverty that excites us so much. We're talking about probably a, a financial flow of $300 billion a year, which is three times the, the entire aid budget. And as, as you were saying in your question, some very small, very poor countries have benefited enormously from tourism. So the potential is, is tremendous and the, the actual experience in many cases has been extremely positive. That doesn't, of course, uh, undermine those, the examples that we've just heard. When, when tourism goes bad, it can be very bad. David, you would defend tourism as a, a global multi-billion industry. Is, is, is that right? Yes, it's a huge industry. I mean, it accounts for around 9% of GDP. So that's... 260 million jobs, $6 trillion, it is big. And if you look forward over the next 10 years, it's going to get bigger. We have a huge influx of middle-class consumers coming from Brazil, Russia, India and China. Forecasts something like another 2 billion consumers coming to the marketplace, all of whom are going to want to travel. So it is big. It's, a, it's an industry that is bigger than the automotive industry, and it's slightly behind banking in terms of the total impact of travel and tourism. So the people that work within it, the people that feed off it in the sense that are employed by it, and all of the knock-on impacts. So it is big, and it's not particularly well understood by governments. The, the big question, surely, Tricia, is, uh, you know, we, we've heard about sort of huge flows from north to south, but the question is how much of that money stays in the south? Are, are you confident that enough stays in the South? If only I could say yes. The opportunities there are actually enormous. But the truth is rather depressing and extremely well explained by your guy from Nazareth and also your guy from Kibera. The money, unless you are really committed as tribes travellers to ensuring that it goes into the community, actually doesn't. The trickle-down is pathetic. Yes, it creates countless jobs, but those jobs are often not even paid a minimum wage, let alone a living wage. We've done research into those jobs, and it's really scary when you have a, a chambermaid working all the hours that she can and never being paid for the overtime that she has to work who can't afford a litre of milk for her family at the end of an extremely heavy week, often in a double shift. So, no, the conditions for the workers are really poor. Uh, it 
can work only when it's an additional. I mean, tourism is a development issue. So who's it's, making the money, Tricia? Who's making the money? Who do you think is making the money? That's the companies are making the money. The middlemen, the developers and the people along the supply chain who are making the decisions and formulating the contracts. And are they southerners? or I mean, are we talking about domestic investors in the south or are we talking about multinationals that are based maybe in the north? There is a huge drive for foreign direct investment. A huge drive. And even the poorest countries in the world that you wouldn't even think about going on holiday to want to double, triple and quadruple the number of tourists that are visiting them. And what they do is allow foreign investors to come in and develop without paying tax. So So for 15 or 20 years, there's no tax being paid on any profits or any of the developments that are taking place. So David, is it fair to say that it's a massive industry, but actually a disproportionate amount of the benefits go back to northern countries? I'm not sure it's quite fair to say that, because if you look at a country like China, for example, the explosion in tourism there is domestic tourism. It's not international people going into China. And so what the government has had to do there is manage that growth over the last 10 or 15 years in a, in a very sustainable way. And these are huge numbers that they're talking about. So, for example, if you look at Beijing, at the moment they have 100 million tourists coming in every year, of which only 5 million are international, 95 million are domestic. In the next five years, they anticipate that's going to double to to 200 million, 10 million coming in from abroad and and the rest domestic. So the vast majority of people moving around the world are actually being fed on domestic tourism rather than international tourism. And in that case, in that country, the Chinese government is is very well organised at managing infrastructure developments over a five and ten year cycle building hotels in a sustainable way and trying to manage that growth that that is inevitably coming. China's probably quite an unusual example. What about sub-Saharan Africa? Who benefits from Kenyan wildlife tours? Well, it's a really interesting question because I've I've been out there and I've looked at different situations with different companies that that work within WTTC and, and clearly the best model is where the tribes, let's say the Maasai, own the piece of territory on which all of this is happening. So it develops an income stream whether it's royalty payments or per head payments or hotel bed nights or whatever. So there's an income coming to that local community, as well as creating jobs for people who are coming in and, and being serviced on those kinds of tours. But ultimately, Trish is right, you know, the, the vast majority of money is not finding its way into the local communities. And that's something that we're all concerned about and we have to address. Jonathan, can you put any figures on that for us? I mean, what proportion of this uh, industry is- uh, wealth is actually staying in the community. Have you got a percentage? Yeah, we, we've we've spent the last uh, five five or so years doing doing exactly that. We we've been to a whole range of uh, destinations uh, throughout sub-Saharan Africa and uh, um, particularly Southeast Asia, and followed the tourist dollar. And what we're finding is typically with a, a long haul tourist package half half the uh, the money will go to an airline to get get the tourists there and i think that's a fact of life and if you don't don't like it then tourists won't go to the south and nothing nothing will get to developing countries so so half is involved in in moving people and we've really focused on the the half that are, arrives in in the country and um what we found is that when it's when it's good uh, about a quarter of the the money that's uh, spent in country uh, will accrue to poor people within within the country. 
clearly, if you've got a, a sophisticated economy like South Africa or Vietnam or China, they're better able at capturing as much of, as possible of that, that half that, that doesn't go to the, the airline and the, the outbound tour operator. Um, but as, uh, as I think some of your, your contributors were saying, where you have corruption, where you have poorly regulated tourism, the, the benefit capture is much less than that. Um, and it isn't just chambermaids. I think the, um, uh, when you look at who's benefiting from tourism, it is partly people working in hotels. If, if wages are high in those hotels through minimum wage legislation, that helps. But often uh, the beneficiaries of tourism, are, you find them in the strangest places. You find them on farms, uh, often quite a long way away from the, the hotel. They're growing the food that tourists are eating. You'll find them uh, making the craft that, that tourists buy, catching the fish that, that tourists eat. So when you trace those, uh, those supply chains from, from a hotel, from a, a resort or destination, um, it's, it's important that you look very widely at who's benefiting because often they pop up in the strangest places. David, Trisha described a really sort of disturbing scenario of the chambermaid who can't even afford the milk for her child at the end of hours and hours of, of work. Uh, what's the industry trying to do to, to tackle this kind of problem? Well, I think it's, it's a mixed situation, Trish is right. I mean, the, the, the bigger hotel chains are pretty good at employing people at the right kind of rates, and, and they are very controlled in what they do. They pump a lot of money into research and development, supporting local communities, working on eco-projects, and various things like that. But I think it's the, the smaller hotels and guest houses in, in the less developed countries where this is still a significant issue. And I, and I don't think there's any quick fix to it. It's something that, that has to work over a period of time. There has to be a lot of work with the governments in those countries to get them to lift the standard of living and to make sure that the dollars are actually finding their way through to the people who are working in these, in these places. And, and there's no instant solution. No instant solution, Tricia. You're obviously trying very hard to find solutions. We need to get the basics right, first of all. I mean, tourism is a human rights issue as well as a development issue. So we're talking about massive resorts being developed that take water very often away from local people. So we're talking about local people's ability to do exactly what Jonathan's talking about, which is to provide the sort of food for the hotels. But in fact, they don't. The hotel I was talking about with the chambermaid is American-owned. Local people didn't have access to water. The trade union had been uh, banned by the new management there. Uh, what can I say? People often spoke to me with great fear of the cost for their job. And that is true universally. So water is something that tourism concerns working on. We want to see equity for local people as well as the tourist, as well as the golf course, and as well as um, the fact that every hotel expects to have a swimming pool and showers. Local people have rights too. So human rights are absolutely fundamental to any key and important development for tourism that can provide people with what they need out of it. So, for example, when we're talking about the Maasai, as we have been, and talking about when they own the product, so to speak, they're much more likely to benefit from it. We have story upon story upon story for the last 21 years of our existence of Maasai and other indigenous people being thrown off of their land, hounded off, murdered, shot, 
burnt out of their homes in order for wonderfully award-winning hotels to develop on their place. I can tell you of current cases today. Mm. So we have to think about basics and about human rights in relation to tourism. The two are in partnership. Jonathan, there's an important issue there Trish has raised about the environmental impact. Mm. Um, Presumably that's really acute in some places. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, you can look at it in terms of the destination, but there's also getting there and the whole issue of uh, carbon generation and and aviation, which is becoming an increasingly important issue uh, for the environment, but also for uh, for governments who who are creating taxes that might more or less reflect the uh, the carbon generation of aviation. So getting there is an important environmental issue, and we, we've started looking at the, the environmental cost versus the socioeconomic benefit once, once you arrive, coming up with some interesting answers there. Um, but also in the destination itself, and I've, I've, I've been really struck by, for instance, in Cape Verde, where there's been a huge rush of... Uh, investment in hotels in this small small island off, off West Africa. Um, how quickly the government have responded to the, the concerns about environmental pressures there. And what are the environmental pressures in Cape Verde? Is it water or land? Uh, it, it's water and it's the uh, placing of extremely large hotels uh, right on the shoreline of some environmentally quite quite fragile ecosystems. And I, I've just been very impressed how this African government has taken advice from, from conservationists throughout throughout the world and is, is trying to develop a more sustainable product. So there are some success stories. Uh, that's an interesting example of one. Can you point to any others where they've managed to really I- improve that economic benefit? Yeah, I, I think there are there are lots of examples. Um, I mean, within within Europe, a lot of Southern Europe has developed um, largely on 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 the back of tourism. I think if you look at some of the smallest and most vulnerable economies in the world, we've got the nearly fifty least developed countries. Now, very few of those have made it through to middle income status. Uh, Botswana did, and that was mainly because of the diamonds. Cape Verde was the second one ever to make it out of least developed status. And that was almost entirely because of tourism. Um, the Maldives did in January this year. That was almost entirely because of tourism. And uh, my understanding is that Samoa is lined up to graduate to middle income status again because of tourism can uh, I, early can, next year. And of those three success stories, Cape mm. Verde... Um, and the Maldives and Samoa. What's their performance like on the MDGs? Because if you remember, we were asking the question, can tourism play a part mm. in achieving the MDGs? Yeah, no, it, it, it's critically bound up with the MDGs because the what defines a country as least developed is partly being poor, but also having poor um, human development scores. And so the way that these countries have developed is partly becoming less poor, gaining money, but critically, it's also reducing their vulnerability, their economic vulnerability, which is what you do when you develop another sector in addition to fishing and, and agriculture. Um, but it's also critically building up this human capital through better education, better health. And, and that's how countries graduate out of least development, least uh, developed status. We asked some of our uh, visitors to our website to come up with some questions. Um, one of them from Buttercup 
2011 wants to know what impact a lack of tourism has on countries. So, for example, uh, a country such as Bangladesh is surrounded by tourism hotspots, uh, not many tourists in Bangladesh. Uh, how does that affect the development? Uh, the first study that we ever did was, um, this with the Overseas Development Institute, was in the Gambia. And I was lucky enough to be working with a, a colleague from the Institute who's from the Gambia. And on the flight over where we were doing a study to look at the impact of tourism, she told me about when she was young and just after the coup in the Gambia where there's an almost total cessation, cessation of tourism. And she remembers as a 10-year-old what it's like being in a country that's very tourist-dependent when the tourists go away. And she said everything stopped. Uh, we then went and did a, a proper economic study and actually confirmed her viewpoint as a 10-year-old as a child that tourism does have a big economic impact. And when, when it doesn't happen, either because it never existed or um, when, it's, when it's cut off because of political instability, has a tremendous impact. And that's often the best way, actually, of seeing the impact of tourism, see what happens when it stops. Another question from our talk point was Richard Trio, who said he'd like to see tax breaks for ethical fair trade tour operators. Uh, and I wondered, David, what, what do you think there is the potential for a growth in ethical tourism? Well, taxation is such a huge issue. If you just take the UK, um, think about carbon emissions, eco-tax, um, and this wonderful tax called APD, which is imposed on everybody who flies out of this country. And that is a tax that was started as a green tax, specifically around carbon emissions. And over a period of time, has become a revenue income stream for the Treasury, uh, and in the same way that they take revenue income streams from other aspects of taxation. And that is now stuck in the ecosystem of taxation in this country. And so what that starts to do is um, it means that people, when they go on these trips, they have less disposable income because of all this revenue income going to the Treasury. And therefore, they have less disposable income to plough into the local communities when they get there. And it's a pretty serious issue. And the UK is, is leading in this area, but it's not a good place to be leading. So what, what is your organisation doing to try and clean up some of the problems that Trisha's identified, for example, uh, not paying the minimum wage? Well, the organisation that, that I represent are, are the bigger industry players. And so it's the bigger hotel groups and the airlines and the car rental businesses. And they work really hard. They, they work really hard to make sure they operate ethically. They do a lot of sharing of best practice in terms of construction of hotels and how they employ people, how they train people. And education is a huge part of this. You know, if you, if you go back to the, the Caribbean perhaps 25 years ago, there was huge resentment from people working in hotels about the tourists coming in for the obvious reasons. There was a huge wealth gap, if you like. But over 20 years of education, the kids coming through Caribbean schools now understand that it's, it's very important for the economy, for jobs and employment, etc., the whole attitude to services changed as a result because they understand it's kind of 70% of what that particular island does. So education is a key part of this as well. Right. Jo Jonathan, most of what we've been talking about is, is private sector tourism. Um, what, what if the state controls the tourism industry or, for mm. example, communities uh, <clears throat> run hotels? Is there a, a question here about ownership, that if you get the ownership right, you can ensure that the country actually benefits? I think I think there is an issue with with ownership. I, I was very struck with um, Kennedy's point on the the slums around Nairobi that 
Uh, from my own experience in, in South Africa, just after the democratic uh, elections there, the initially um, uh, the townships around South Africa were um, offered as a, a tourist product, almost like uh, nature parks. And people were put into buses and uh, driven around to, to view contemporary uh, South African life. Uh, from within the vehicle. What happened very quickly there, though, was that the residents of the townships began creating their own organisations, and actually they developed into enormously popular and extremely beneficial, from the, ta the township residents' point of view, source of income. And also, uh, rather than just staring at poor people, very quickly the product developed into one where visitors would leave the leave the van and actually go to the, the guide's house and meet his mum. And so it became a very authentic product. So I think ownership is clearly important. If we're talking about the role of the state, um, the state's ownership uh, sometimes is, is quite significant in bits of Vietnam, obviously in China, um, parts of parts of Africa, Ethiopia, for instance, the state owns quite a lot of hotels and, and airlines. Um, but what really strikes me as the important role of the state is in regulating mm. tourism, whoever owns it, and, and making sure it's fair and making sure it's not exploitative. Tricia, the picture you paint is, is quite quite depressing. What's, what's your hope for the future? What, what do you think could sort of turn things around and prove them somewhat? Well, as I say, uh, first of all, uh, acknowledging a lot of what's been spoken about today, which is the land issues, who owns the land, who owns the property, where the decisions are made, how those decisions are made. So and, and how we are you talk about fair trade. I mean, if we could take that forward, if you could just imagine a fairly traded product. But how are you going to bring about that change in the consumer so that they start insisting on fair trade holidays? We campaign, and we're a campaigning organisation. It's a very tough job we have, though. Can you imagine? Everybody thinks holidays are a right. When you're affluent enough, you have a right to take holiday. People don't think about the rights of the local people, their right to water, their right to a fair livelihood and an opportunity to prosper as well. So what we try to do is raise the issues. We're raising the issues now about water and water equity. Everybody needs to have a fair share. It's really not appropriate that the hotels taking very often water from other people's um, aquifers and other people's wells. It's been happening in Goa for years, it's been happening in the Gambia for years, it's been happening all around the world. So we want to raise awareness, we're going to be asking members of the public to join us in this campaign, we can use the new media to do this and at the moment, we're pulling in all our research. It's very shocking research. We find out, going to Bali, for example, that they're not moving towards a state of crisis. They are in a state of crisis where farmers can no longer farm because the water for the paddy is going elsewhere. It is quite shocking out there how to get the message across saying to people, hey, it's great you can go on holiday because if you don't, like the Gambia, everything falls flat. But things need not to be over-dependent on tourism. That was the problem in the Gambia. That's all for this week's Guardian Focus podcast. For more on development issues, visit guardian.co.uk forward slash global development. My thanks to my guests, Trisha Barnett, Jonathan Mitchell and David Scousel. I'm Madeline Bunting. The producer was Peter Sale and the researcher was Claire Provost. Thanks for listening.
For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.